0: But for this morning, we're in John chapter 13, so you can turn there. Speaking of the pastoral team, I unabashedly admit, confess, that I'm the residential pastoral nerd on our team. So I'm, I'm the, gui, the guy quoting um, different space trilogies and sci-fi um, movies during staff meeting, quoting Shakespearean movies. That's a particular favorite. And probably my favorite Shakespearean movie is one that was produced, directed, um, start in by a man named Kenneth Branagh, Henry V, and won't give you the whole lowdown. But basically, this is set back in the 1200s, where the English invade the French, just because that's typically what happens in history, right? The English invade, invade, the, invade the French, and there is a decisive battle um, at Agincourt, and they're fighting over um, the royalty line or who succeeds the throne or what have you. And, there, and there's this poignant scene where Henry V gathers up all of his trusted counselors and advisors. And this is before they sail over the English Channel to invade. These are his trusted folks, and and, and he's calling a council of war. This is the time to lay out the plans and to give the details and to to kind of expose his heart to what he is leading them towards, their strategy, their mission. And so he gives each of them a set of plans, and he asks them, to all open their plans up. But unbeknownst to any of them except for Henry, there are three traitors in the mix. And as these particular men were opening up their plans to read the Council of War, they realized that they were reading their own death sentence. And it's a poignant moment where Henry dismisses them off to their execution. And then he turns back to his trusted counselors and he says, now is the time to plan for war. Here is where I'm going to disclose to you, my, my most trusted man, now that, we've, now that we've excommunicated this sort of, this, this bad apple in the batch, the traitor, it's time to get down to business. And in a lot of ways, that's what's happening in the Gospel of John here. See, Jesus has, has gathered his twelve in the upper room. And unbeknownst to them, but beknownst to him, there is a traitor in their midst. In fact, Jesus selected Judas, who was the traitor. We looked at this last week, precisely because he was a betrayer. It was part of God's purposes and plans. And here Jesus is about to lay out four chapters of instructions, four, four chapters of last words, parting instructions, encouragements, exhortations, battle plans, commands, that they are to follow when he's gone because he's about to leave. In mere hours he will be hanging on a cross. And what we have here in this upper room discourse is Jesus' truest heart to his truest followers. It is here that he wants to unveil this special, subversive, if we could want to call it that, plan weapon that God that, that Jesus is going to send them into battle with, what will this thing be? And if you if you can, would love for you to stand. If you can, it's okay, but we're going to read from God's word. We're going to read just eight verses starting in verse 31 to the end of the chapter. What will Jesus tell them? Now it says when he, and that means Judas, and you see the stark transition and contrast here. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, it's such a magnificent passage. It's such a large passage It might even be a really familiar passage to us. We pray that you would give us fresh eyes and ears and heart this morning to receive your word. To know what it truly means to love. By understanding the fatherly love, the initiating love, the electing love that you have poured out on your people. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. There's something somewhat startling about this passage, in that John uses two unique expressions and attributes them to Jesus that we find in no other place in the Gospels. Only here do we read about it, and anytime that's the case, it should get our attention. The first expression he uses is the one we find in verse 33, where where Jesus calls the disciples his little children. That is a intimate word. It's a deep word. It's a word that reflects love and affection and commitment. We find it no other place in the Gospels. Interestingly enough, we do find it mentioned in 1 John seven times. Obviously, whatever Jesus says this night leaves a lasting impact on John so much. He's writing about it. It's fresh on his heart 60 years later. The second expression that Jesus utters here that's found nowhere else in the New Testament is this idea of new commandment. Again, we don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament except where? First and Second John. And John Piper, Pastor John Piper has, has theorized, he has a thesis, and I think it's probably correct. And when I say it's probably correct, what I mean is it's absolutely correct. But he believes that 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John are in fact commentaries to the gospel of John that folks like us are sitting down here and we're, we're reading about this new commandment in love and, and they're asking John the apostle questions and John's like, okay, I got that. I'll write you an epistle and let you know a little bit more about that. Maybe that should be our next book. I don't know. I'm just making this up as I go. So don't, just, don't, don't mark that. But whatever is happening here, it has left, I mean, it has seized John's heart John is the only one to include this material in John 13 through 17. And I think part of the way to understand this is that John is the only one there who knows what's really going on. Now, remember last week, it was John who was sitting at the right hand of Jesus at the Last Supper. And and as Jesus said, somebody's going to betray me. And the, all the disciples are arguing like, is it you, is it you, it's him, it's who, who is it? And in the hubbub, remember, John leans back against Jesus' breast They're reclining at table and he, and he whispers to him, Lord, who is it, who is it? And by the virtue of the reaction of the disciples after this, we know they don't hear Jesus' response, only John does and Jesus says, watch, I'm gonna dip my bread and give it to him and the worsen I give it to he is the betrayer. And so as this whole scene is unfolding, John has a very unique perspective. Even verse 31 where it says that Jesus Judas departs, the, length, the, the, the verbiage indicates this abrupt rupture, this abrupt departure, that this community of disciples was not clean. There was a betrayer here. There was one there who was not fit to hear the innermost intimate words of Jesus, and so he exits. John understands that these words are for his beloved alone, his special, unique people. And let me just say, when we go back to, when we, we'll find this out later in, in the Upper Room Discourse, that Jesus was saying these things not just for them, the disciples, but for those who come after him and them. That's you. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, it is just as if you are sitting around that table and Jesus is speaking these words to you. And so Jesus gives them this initial parting instruction about how to carry on, about how to win the kingdom, how to build the church. And he says, it's just, it's just like this, I'm calling you to love, love. We're going to look at three aspects of this love. We're going to look at the love's demonstration, love's design, and love's durability. And that third point I changed from the first sermon because Josh suggested a change, and that is team ministry at work there, buddy. So thank you very much. Let's look at love's demonstration first. Look at verses 31 through 32 and see if you get the main idea of what Jesus is talking about. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and glorify him at once. Do you get the idea? There's some glory happening. There, there, there's something is being glorified. And you know, and glorify is one of those religious words we toss around a lot. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glory to be to God. We, 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 we throw that word around, but not always sure exactly what we mean. We know it has to do with something with God, and God is big and awesome. But sometimes we have a, we have a harder time really putting our finger on what we mean by this idea of glorify. Recently, I was out speaking at a church in Seattle and doing some of the letting go material from the book Dave Harvey and I wrote. And Seattle, if if you've been there, you know that for a good portion of the year, it's a rather cloudy, rainy, dreary sort of place that serves a lot of coffee, but it's good coffee nonetheless. But this church gave me a heads up and, and said, you know what, you're coming in the summer and the summer is amazing up here. You have the Olympic mountain range and Mount Rainier and the clouds sort of part and you can see things as they as they really are, in contrast to the to the other parts of the year where you don't have such clear vision. And so lo and behold, I got up one morning and we were staying on this little place for this retreat on Puget Sound, and there's the Olympic mountain range and it's crystal clear. And so I get on the phone and I call my wife, I call Susan. And I say, you are not going to believe this place. It is so, and what word word do I use? Glorious. Oh, it's glorious. See, to glorify in a generic sense means to display or to elevate or to call attention to or to see the essence of a thing. Applied to God and Jesus, you can make this connection It's the revelation of God's splendid, amazing activity. It's getting a crystal clear picture of who God is and what he does. It is seeing the character and power of God on display. And the question is, where is it that God's glory is most clearly seen? Now this is an interesting question because if you were to if we were to take a little survey and say where do we need to see the God, the glory of God in our lives? Or or think about the times in your life when God has been magnificently glorified and maybe you think about well you know when we had our first child that was just that was glorious or when we got married or it wouldn't it be really glorious like, Pastor Paul, if I won the lottery and I got to be on the news and I gave glory to God and half the winnings to Four Oaks, okay? We, we could definitely get down with that for sure. That, the, just whatever, what is the picture of glorious to you? Where do, where do we see glory most clearly? Well, the way this text is laid out and the way Jesus is speaking, it's clear that whatever this moment of glory is. It's been building for the whole gospel. See, Jesus has said over and over, we've talked about this, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come. But we know that as we rounded the turn in chapter 12 and chapter 13, Jesus has finally said, my hour has come. And it's clear from this text that things have been building to this moment. Look again in verse, in verse 31. Judas leaves and what does Jesus say? Now is the Son of Man glorified. He, he's glorified in a way he wasn't at the baptism. He was glorified in a way he wasn't at the transfiguration. Now he is glorified. I will glorify him, what, is, what, is John, what does Jesus say? At once. See, whatever this glory thing that's happening, whatever, wherever that is viewed, displayed, or made known, it's clear from the gospel of John that everything has been building to this moment. And if you were God writing the script, what would that moment be? Well, it's going to be glory when Jesus rides in. He deposes Pilate and the Praetorian guard. Let's send Jesus back up to the temple. Let him clear house again and institute true worship, true religion. Pastor Paul, if the glory of God showed up in my life, this thing would be happening and this wrong would be righted, and this justice would be made good. What, what would that look like for you? Well, what it looks like for Jesus, and I think this gospel makes this clear over and over again, this text makes it clear, that the moment of greatest glory for Jesus Christ, the moment, the, the event where the glory of God is most clearly displayed is, in fact, the death of Jesus. Look at verse 30 t- 33. Jesus says, I am with you just a little while. Where I am going, you cannot come. He tells us in verse 36, Peter, you can't come now. Later you will come. It's clear. It's obvious, is it not? Jesus is talking about his death. And we would think that this betrayal, this death would be sort of the anti-climax of this story, right? This is the Greek tragedy. where where the protagonist dies at the end and things are terrible because things have been going great. There's been miracles and power. And now we would expect, glorify yourself, Jesus. Set up your throne. Do your thing. Make things right. Yet, Jesus says, my glory is going to be most fully displayed. God is going to be most clearly glorified on that shameful, humiliating torturous cross. It's there that you will see me most clearly. Because we understand that in this life, the gospel turns things upside down. And it makes sense that if it's in the suffering of Jesus Christ that the glory of God is most clearly revealed that we as his servants, we as his family that are following him that God will call us, as hard as it is, to glorify him most through our suffering. This is what Paul says when he talks about, I long to participate in the fellowship of his suffering. That is the moment where God's glory is most clearly displayed. Let me say, Pastor Paul, how, how is that? Don't, whole, fee, whole seminary classes are devoted to this topic, but let me just give you a couple of ways. It is on the cross... That God's justice, his wrath, finds perfect satisfaction. You see, it won't do in a, in a culture that values social justice and social issues, which we should. But it will not do to simply say, let bygones be bygones, or let's make it right in this life. That's, that's not enough for a holy, infinite, eternal God. Sin has to be dealt with once and for all. There has to be a point in time where God says, I'm going to decisively deal with this human issue. I'm going to make things right. And the way I'm going to make it right, I'm going to pour my wrath out on my own son. We see God's glory on the cross by the fact that those who were far away from God, that's us, were brought to God by Jesus being made a propitiation for our sins. That means a sacrifice of atonement that is through jesus that that we receive the mercy of god the grace of god the forgiveness of god in fact it's in the cross jesus seems to be saying that the fullness of god is displayed all of his attributes in equal quotients if we can use that word for god an equal display this is why christian you never get past the cross I could never get past the cross. Isn't it interesting? John did write another little book in the New Testament you may have heard about called Revelation. And John tells us in Revelation that we're going to be singing about the cross forever. John says, there appeared before me a lamb looking as if it was slain. And all of the figures and the angels And the people of heaven were gathered around the throne and they were worshiping and they were glory, glory to the lamb who was slain. See, we will never get past the cross. You can never get past the cross in your life. We don't grow past our need for the gospel. We don't grow past our need for the transforming work of God's grace. And it's most clearly demonstrated for us through the death of Jesus Christ. That's love's demonstration. Now, what's its design? Let's look at verse 34 and 35. Because I've done this, Jesus says, because I'm going away, because I'm dying, here's what I want you to do. Do you hear that? That's his design for you and me. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love for one another. Now, let's just be really honest. When we look at the problems of the world, we look at the condition of the human heart, we look at all the ills that inflict us as a society, country, and a world, and we read that, and that just sounds, that just sounds like kumbaya, does it not? That is just naive at best, hopelessly inadequate. I'm from Tennessee, so I'll, I'll say this. This is like sending that little volunteer group of, Tennessee, of Tennesseans into the, to the Alamo with their little muskets and saying, take on the 10,000 of Santa Ana. It's like, it sounds noble. It makes for a cool song, Davy Crockett and all that stuff. Okay, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's come on. What a, what, what a joke. But here, Jesus says, this is how the world Will know me through you. Now, this idea of a new commandment, that's important for us to unpack a minute because clearly, on one hand, there's nothing new about this commandment. It's all over the Bible, it's all over the Old Testament. By the way, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, the God of the New Testament is love and mercy, and the God of the Old Testament is justice and wrath, and we don't have anything to do with the God of the Old Testament. That is not the way Jesus read his Bible, believed his Bible. He said, it all points to me. But we learn we have some of the clearest expressions of love in the entire Bible from the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God is, is slow to anger, abounding in love. And if you've been spending your quiet times in Leviticus lately, you know. From Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19 Jesus says comes the, sadist, the second greatest commandment of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. So we have to ask, what's going on here? What's new about this commandment? Let me say a couple things about this. Part of what's new is the way the manifestation of, of the love of God takes place. So in the Old Testament, how was sin dealt with? With an animal. With a blood sacrifice. It was an animal for a person's life. But see, the animal could not take away the the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. It, It only symbolizes this. That's why they had to be offered over and over and over again. But what's different about this sacrifice? The writer of Hebrews says is that it is once and for all. It is complete. It is it is not just an animal symbolized to offer for the sins of a man. It's man for man. It's man for woman. It's man for the sins of the world, as John tells us in John 3. It, it's so much so that Jesus tells them in this text, love as I have love. This is a radically new idea. This is a radically new concept. I mean, I, I can love, I can sacrifice, I can give, I can buy a bull and a goat, but my life so it's different and it's new in that way. But it's also new in terms of the capacity we now have as believers to love. We're gonna to get to this section here in a few weeks, a few months or a few years later in John, not sure which one, but where Jesus tells them something really strange. Now imagine if you're the disciples, you're in the upper room, and and the world wants to kill you and hate you, and, and Jesus is the only rock that you have and Jesus tells you, I'm leaving, and it's better for you if I leave. It's better. If I, in other words, if I stay, that's not as good. And we're going to find out one of the reasons Jesus says this is that when Jesus is on earth as the God-man, he is one person in one space in one time, loving those around him. But he says, when I leave guess what? I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you that's going to indwell each and every one of you personally. So in other words, the Spirit of Christ, when Jesus was on earth, was right there. The Spirit of Christ was in Jesus. But when Jesus leaves, where is the Spirit of Christ now in all of you? Which means that when when you and I get together for coffee or we go out for lunch and we're not just two dudes trying to like encourage each other and help each other and love each other, although that, that is true. But do you realize when we gather together as believers, whether it's in the family, the home, our community group, here, at, here in the large group, whatever have you, we are actually sharing Jesus Christ with each other because the spirit of Jesus inhabits us Personally, if you know him. To use a military term, Jesus says it's better for me to leave because you're going to be the force multiplier for my love. See, it's not just me loving the world and trying to get you guys to do the right thing. I'm actually going to be living in you, loving others, displaying love to others, making Others known your discipleship through your love because it's not just you loving someone else, it's me loving through you. Do you see now why Jesus can say things like, When when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me? You see that? It's because you literally have. When you pray for that person in your community group, when you bring that neighbor a meal, when you you're not just serving from a humanitarian context. You're not just giving social or psychological support, although all that's true. You are actually giving the very presence of Christ. See, and that kind of love only happens in deep, committed relationships. Because this is why the the church, we believe, is, is literally the vehicle, the instrument for God pouring out his mercy and grace in your life and to the world. See, when you cut yourself off from the people of God, whatever that looks like for you, do you realize that you're literally cutting yourself off from the presence of Christ? Not that God's abandoned you or not that God ceases to live in you, but you've deprived yourself of a divine, eternal benefit by being in fellowship with other believers. Do you know when you cut yourself off from the people of God, You're depriving others of God's presence. Guys, I look out here this morning, and there are so many of you who have so much to offer the body of Christ. The body of Christ needs you. And so Jesus' great design is that we would love one another. And by doing that, demonstrate to the world that we truly are his disciples. There's a lot of things the church can offer that the world can offer. The church can offer relevance, the church can offer hip, the church can offer cool, the the church can offer social media platform, the church can offer ambiance, the church can offer, you name it. But there's only one thing, but the world offers all those things, but there's only one thing that the church can offer that's completely unique and that is the love of Jesus Christ in you, in me. That's love's design. Lastly, love's durability. How did the disciples respond to this call? And you have to leave it up to Peter, the spokesman, to jump right in. And what does Peter say? Lord, I will lay my life down for you. I'm all in on this love, is what Peter's saying. I'm all in. I'm with you all the way. Peter reminds me of that middle school that goes off or the high school that goes off on that weekend retreat and comes back totally fired up for Jesus, right? Uh, Monday morning, I'm going to share the gospel on the lunch cafeteria table. I'm going to anoint. I'm going to pray. I'm going to stand up. I'm not going to succumb to peer pressure. And what happens Monday morning? <laughs> right? It, it's, it's, it's invariable. All of us can, 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 can identify with that. That's not. By the way, it's not a student problem. That's a human problem. That's all of us. That's Peter. He's emotional. He's fired up. He's ready to rock. And in verse 38, Jesus just has to go there. I mean, think of all the things Jesus could have said here. Thanks, Peter. Peter, I, you know, I really appreciate that. I, I, I know you're with me. Okay. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Nah, not so much, Peter. Not the way you think. In fact, tonight, within just the space of a couple of hours, you are, you're, you're not even going to love me. You're not even going to deny me. You're not even going to admit that you know me. You're going to, aren't you the guy with Jesus? Don't even know him. Aren't you the man from Galilee? I, I hear that in your accent. No, 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 that's not, no, no, not me at all. I am just along for the ride. Isn't it interesting that Jesus tells them the way this new commandment is centered on his death for them and the very way that Peter will fail is that he will not at this moment give his life for Jesus he feels he fails at the very tip of the spear of this commandment and he doesn't just go down He goes down hard. One of the commentators had this quote about Peter, and I think it's great because I think it's us. It's me. He says this, Good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. See, John reminds us of something sobering this morning that on this grand adventure of loving one another, this new commandment, guess what? You're going to fail. And I'm going to fail. Dads, you may have slinked in here this morning feeling like a failure or feeling despondent or feeling like somebody has, has failed you. You've had great intentions But sometimes as a father, sometimes as a Christian, sometimes as a mother, you fail spectacularly. There are going to be times when even the people of God doubt God's word, when they fail at his love, and when they do, what are we to do? That's the question. See, this text ends on a sobering note because we have to answer that. What what do we do when we fail in that love? I find something so incredibly encouraging about this text. Go back to 33. Judas has left. Keep that in mind. And the first thing that Jesus says to them, one of the first things is what, 33? Little children. It's an assertion of deep emotional attachment, commitment, intimacy, something that as a parent you can fully identify with, that the heart of, the, the, the deepest part of your heart is always for your kids and for their best. Notice, though, where in the story this comes. See, verse 33, little children, comes before verse 38, which says, Oh no, Peter, you're going to deny me. In other words, Peter, you belong to me, that comes first. That's the foundation of everything. That's the gospel. The fact that you will fail me does not change your status as a son or daughter. It does not change your relationship to my father as your father. It doesn't change your relationship to me as your fellow brother. See, this this passage is all about grace. It's all about the gospel. Gospel is what gives us grace to move forward in our failures. Peter, I know you're going to fail me, but what is he, but but, but before that, but Peter, I loved you first. I loved you first. We love, yes, because he first loved us. Do you know that? That's the gospel. Interesting, we'll get into the next time that we're in John chapter 14, verse 1. Remember, sermon divisions are arbitrary, made by some group of suits and a Bible committee. Okay. They weren't there in the original. Jesus says this to Peter You will deny me three times. And does he just leave Peter hanging? Verse 1 of chapter 14. Oh, Peter, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is a special word. Whether you're mother, daughter, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, grandparent, friend, church member, single, married, young, old, black, white, whatever you are, Jesus says, here's what comes first. I've loved you. I've laid down my life for you. You're my little child. And when you embrace me in faith and repentance, even when you fail, even when you deny me three times, I still love you. We can love because he first loved us. That's what we celebrate here at the table. That when we, when we come up, we're, we're coming up not as people who've achieved the worthiness of the fatherhood of God, that by our humanitarian deeds and our acts of righteousness, we've, we've achieved some sort of special status, that we've raised ourselves to God's level, that we've made ourselves more presentable, more accessible. No, no. We come to the table as broken people saying the greatest truth in our lives is that God is our father because Jesus is our Savior.